HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Gelb, host of the Consumer VC podcast, where he interviews venture funders and CPG founders. Mike started the show in 2019 by cold emailing a few investors and has since released over 200 episodes. Consumer VC has expanded to virtual and IRL events and newsletters, all bringing together the consumer innovation and startup community. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Allie. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm. it's fun being the interviewer interviewing the interviewer. <laughs> Is it fun being the interviewer being the interviewee? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun today. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, one of the reasons why I think I'm excited for this is, you know, everyone who listens knows I like to have not just founders, but sort of everyone from the ecosystem on here. Um, for a number of reasons, really, it's, you know, the not how I built this, but like, how on earth am I going to build this? And I love every once in a while having someone who just has a little bit of, you know, 10,000 feet above the ground insight. You know, after 200 episodes, you interview a lot of people on all different sides of this, you know, sort of thing that we're doing. Um, And my guess is that, you know, you have some trends and themes and ideas that have emerged. And I want this to be sort of the place for you to dump them 
for lack of a better word. (laughs) (laughs) Sound good? (laughs) Yeah, happy to dump them here. Sounds great. Amazing. Okay. So, you know, I guess let's start on the investor side of things. You, You interview a lot of VCs. Um, which, you know, I don't do as much and you get to hear the, you know, the skinny on not only what they're looking for, but what they're feeling and how they're thinking about things. And my guess is that a lot of it is similar. They're looking for companies that are, you know, growing and making better for you products and that have good brands and good businesses. But, Is there anything else? Are there deeper things that you're seeing and hearing? Are there some things that have stuck out to you? You know, three or four sort of things that we can dig into. Sure. So I first think on the brand side of things, like Mm -hmm. investing in, you know, consumer brands that um, like, this is how I kind of think about the last maybe 10, 12 years on the fundraising side. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're a consumer brand, I think, you know, 10 years and or, you know, 12 years ago and, and beyond when, you know, Facebook was kind of rising. Right. And their mm-hmm. and their ads business came to be um, there was a lot of attraction um, from brands and a lot of kind of upfront uh, brands that, you know, used Facebook and also Google as well, by the way, um, mm-hmm. to um, as as distribution for their brands. And they got very low CACs from that mm-hmm. since there was there was kind of little supply right but a lot of demand people were kind of glued to to Facebook and you know there wasn't nearly as many as well like other types of social media platforms out there like there is today right and so right. you had this like huge demand and like and a very kind of little supply when it came to um when it came to uh, like advertise, uh, um, advertising, um, the number right. of brands advertising. And so these, these brands were able to grow um, quite really big, quickly. really mm-hmm. quickly, and also not really have tremendous amounts of customer acquisition co- costs, right? And, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And I think that, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, tech investors, um, and principally, I think when people think about venture capital, they primarily think about technology investors, um, even right. though there certainly are a number of other um, types of investors are, there is. But if for venture investors, they were very, I think that we kind of became obsessed with the idea of this you know, term like D2C brand uh, uh, and that it would almost maybe behave like they were almost like thought of like software businesses and that they had maybe zero marginal costs, but they can <laughs> kind of keep growing um, and grow uh, to a, 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 you know, a really to be actually quite big. And right. unfortunately, like, and really what it was is D to C um, was just a channel, right? Yeah. It's not actually like a type of business. Yeah. Right. It's not, it's not yeah. a software business. You're the only difference is instead of selling in, you know, Target and Walmart, you're selling online. Right. And so yeah. um, it's a channel and it's not. Um, and I think that we began to really see that and, got, and that kind of played out. Um, uh, and, you know, we started seeing I, I, I think before this kind of happened, we started seeing these huge valuations and a lot of brands getting valued more um, like. Uh, technology companies and what i mean by that is like their multiples for example were like you know ginormous um like like tech companies are 
um, because in tech, you you and the reason why you know technology companies can be have um, huge multiples is right. is um, is you know they're typically they they could be subscription businesses um, like you know SaaS companies or they could be. Um, you know, marketplace where you have these incredible network effects happening, where where then like the market is kind of coming towards you um, if you're able to reach at scale. Um, where in consumer brands, you don't really have those types of effects. I mean, you you could have a pretty good subscription business in consumer, but it's really tough. So anyway, yeah. I think this kind of came kind of kind of crashing down um, the past few years. Well, question on that, on the timing, yeah. because when you're saying that, I'm like, oh, you know, what's interesting is it feels like there was a moment right before COVID where that started that idea of omnichannel and not, you know, I remember when we, because we were never really a strong direct to consumer business because we we're refrigerated yeah. and I'm a Luddite and all that. And I remember, you know, early stage, you know, investors saying like, we only invest in omnichannel. And it was meaning that if you're a grocery brand and your main distribution is, you know, to stores and you don't have, you know, 30, even maybe more uh, percent of your business digital, then you were not interested. And I remember there being a moment before COVID where this idea of D to C being a channel, not an entire business strategy, seemed to be percolating. And then COVID happened. And then everyone's like, oh, nope. Like, <laughs> we're, you know, the numbers got crazy. Sales went crazy. Everyone was in their house, on their phones, buying their favorite CBD infused, whatever. And it seems like now there might be sort of a correction that maybe was starting to happen before COVID, but just got completely blown out of the water by, you know, consumer behavior. What do you think? I, of that? I, 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 I totally agree with you. I think that, you know, before COVID, um, cause I also like started my podcast too, like right before COVID. And I think when right. I was chatting with, you know, investors, um, that, you know, I think also, on the investor side of things, it became a lot more or, I mean, this community all, all um, always existed, but less kind of the prototypical maybe software investor and more so mm -hmm. investors that understood retail, right? And understood, yeah. you know, omnichannel and also understood like, you know, on like Supply D2C chain. as well. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Supply chain and, and what have Human you. Human labor, yeah, trucks. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think and I think something to note here as well is, you know, and the reason why I think you, you see like tech investors kind of now, you know, stay away from, um, D2C brand, D2C, I, I hate using the term D2C, but digitally native brands or or consumer brands more broadly, mm -hmm. partially as well as just on the return side, like if you're raising, you know, a massive fund or you have massive fund, it's really just hard for consumer brands to be worth, you know, in the billions, right? So, it's just, yeah. it's really tricky. And so that's why you've also kind of shifted towards, you know, more like software type businesses because, if it does get big, then that actually that then that outcome could actually possibly return your portfolio, which that's not quite if you have a huge um if you have a lot of if you have um a a huge fund to return, it might not right. be the best place to actually return in consumer. But then going back to these investors, right? There were consumer, you know, food and beverage investors 
they were used to the returns that, you know, an 8X was a nice one. Yeah, you know, there were, one. right, like there, that, that ecosystem existed. Um, and then it feels like there was just everyone got into consumer, including <laughs> yeah. tech, including like, you know, my cousin, literally, like whoever, um, who was not an established investor, but, you know, knew a guy who knew a guy. And you had this sort of like, you know, perfect storm of amazing branding happening at not as expensive as it had been. You know, people starting to share resources about like finding a co-packer to pack your fill in the blank. Um, a lot of money coming in and this low cost of acquisition. So if you had a shelf stable anything, it it was easier. Um, and now, you know, are you seeing people who kind of came into that investment ecosystem leaving kind of as the music is maybe stopping or slowing down? And I mean, are there still those original like OG consumer funds that are like, yep, we're still here. We're still doing what we were doing 10 years ago, you know, and are you, are you seeing any of that? Yeah, I definitely am. I think that, you know, and the thing too about like consumer investors is that, you know, they were, I think that it's always been a pretty robust ecosystem. I think when you, ha when you did have, you know, the software tech, maybe focused investors, um, uh, kind of come in, right? These like these past 10 years that got, you know, really interested in the fact that, oh, wow, you can sell online. This is this is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I think that what that did is just it drove up price, right? It, it drove up valuations. It, it drove up a lot of things. And I think that that's come kind of come back down. There's been that kind of correction back yeah. to um, to normal because like, I mean, also like not for nothing, like, uh, when it comes to consumer, you know, investing in consumer businesses has been long, has been around way before venture capital ever was venture capital, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like ever since, you know, brands have been around since, you know, um, yeah. forever, right? Yep. So, um, you know, food and beverage, obviously like that, that you know, we obviously everyone needs to eat and needs to drink. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think that as an ecosystem, it's, a, it's still an extremely robust ecosystem. And I think, too, like it's just become a lot smarter. Right. Yeah. The valuations, the expectations are just a lot more. There's a lot more, I think, alignment there than maybe there were in years past because there was just such an influx of capital. Not to say there isn't an yeah. influx of capital, but but yeah. um, and there and were the these actual outliers, you know, there were these outliers that just got got to really high sales numbers really quickly. Um, totally. I don't think had happened, you know, it's such a slow grind, um, you know, building distribution, building warehouses, you know, making those inroads with buyers and that was disrupted to some extent and, you know, rightfully so in a lot of ways, because there were all of these gatekeepers just chipping away um, at everything between the brand and the consumer. Um, and, you know, I guess you have all this money coming in, but you also have, you know, companies that are like literally killing it. And I guess not literally, but you know, I don't use, <laughs> I don't use killing it, crushing it. Yeah, LFP. Yeah. I don't use any of that stuff. Cause I'm, you know, a 50 year old woman, but, um, 
you know, they, they were, and they got there and they got to these thresholds and they, I mean, some of them, I think even maybe got to profitability, although I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like a, a, a couple points as well, just regarding venture capital, you know, for entrepreneurs, you know, listening, um, first yeah. of all, like this is typically, um, if they are venture capitalists, they're, they're capital allocators. They're um, obviously trying to produce a return for other people. Right. Yeah. Um, um, not themselves. Um, I mean, yes, obviously for themselves, but like, but you know, other people are, are, are LPs in the fund and, um, you know, they're, when they're kind of modeling out their, um, you know, what they're, what they're trying to achieve, like how, how venture capital investing works traditionally is it's, it's in this, it, it's, it, it's, um, and how they think about portfolio construction, it's power law theory. So what, and what power law is, is that, Power really law, power uh-huh. law, and so uh-huh. if you think about like the distrib, if you think about like the distribution curve, um, it's only going to be like a couple companies that really outperform and do incredibly well, right? A and few are really and a fewer yeah. companies don't do well, and in consumer, that actually is not typically how consumer quite works with with consumer businesses. It's more so like private equity where you actually have right. already have like an have like an evenly distributed curve like i i remember chatting like one of the first episodes on consumer vc was with a a gentleman who only invested in consumer and invested at the very early stages in brands and he said i actually consider myself even though technically i'm a venture capitalist should be just because i'm on the earlier side of things um mm-hmm. how I, th- I i think of myself as like a mini private equity investor because my portfolio construction it's a lot more evenly distributed and the goal right. is to really not have have very few or very little go to zero, right? So is that and power so, law kind of the spray and pray? <laughs> no, it actually it it's a great question. It, it's yeah. it's not so much to deal with the number of investor uh, of investments that you make. Like let's so like let's say here's how like power law. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, attempt to explain it. So if you have like if you yes. invest in like let's say like ten companies, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you want you know two or three of the companies are really going to be your outliers and outliers is a good thing. Meaning like they actually break out and do extremely well. So those three companies might return the entire portfolio and really might be your main, um, the actual Mm -hmm. return for the entire fund. The rest of those kind of seven companies, maybe like three of them, maybe do like a two X or three X. And then, you know, the rest of them, maybe they go to zero or, or or maybe they just return at a, at a one X, but they don't actually perform so well. Um, So you actually, Mm -hmm. you really have like two or three companies are really driving the overall return in that in this kind yep. of example. Whereas in private e- private equity, it's much more like evenly distributed. So, right. so out of those you 10, would, you want you want the majority of them to do well enough. Exactly. A majority right. of them, the majority of investments might do well enough. And but but none of the investments will achieve the type of return on an individual standpoint mm. as they would in like mm-hmm. the power law. Does that kind right. of make sense? Totally, um, totally makes sense. Yeah. Cool. And cool. so going and, and, back to these, you know, these investors, you know, whether they're like, I mean, I guess that's the question then. Are when we talk about investors, should we be thinking about like, okay, there's a few of them that are looking for these, you know, these two to three power companies. And then there's some of them that are looking for that more even distribution. Are they looking for the same things when they're looking at 
these emerging brands and companies? Well, that's that's the thing. So I think that, for example, if you're an investor and trying to use power law theory to consumer brands, I don't think it it'll be really difficult for it to work because getting a getting a consumer brand that can scale to we're talking about you know the outliers for example in VC is like a company that's a unicorn right like this right. is like the type of return you know prof- profile you're looking for in the outliers right. like that's just really really hard to do in consumer right right yep. and so i i i do think for entrepreneurs a great question to ask investors when you're talking. So that's that's why like power law theory, I don't think works as well or makes sense if you're a consumer focused fund, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, um, that theory, you're more so looking at kind of like a micro, like a micro private equity fund, just in terms mm-hmm. of like the, 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 the distribution. So I do yep. think that it's important though, when you look at, um, when you ask investors, what type of return are you hoping for when you invest in a company? Yeah. I really think that, that that's actually a really great question. And what type of company, you know, because I mean, also in the, in the consumer world, like, yes, it's really, really hard to, you know, get to a billion, like, it's almost impossible to get to, you know, a, um, a, a valuation of, of a billion, it happens, but it's extremely rare. Um, I, but you know, there's, there is like a number of exits that happen, right. In like the one, a hundred million to 300 million range. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, those are, um, still like, and that's an obviously like incredible, incredible exit. Um, but that might not be like an outlier type situation if that investor right. was invested in kind of this more power law. And so I do yeah. think that it's great, like worth the worth knowing from an entrepreneur's perspective, like when you're talking to investors, what type of return, how are you thinking about portfolio management? Like, like kind of mm-hmm. understand like their incentives and how large yeah. a company needs to be like their kind of, um, w- what they're, they're hopeful for. Cause that will then like help you, um, uh, you know, obviously gain knowledge and see also as well, if it's the right fit. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. It also helps with, you know, for example, if you, you know, you can kind of map out, you know, with the, with your first product, let's say, you know, how many SKUs and what your average velocity is and how many doors there are literally in the country. And you can kind of get to like, well, this can get us to, you know, 40 million. And so how many more, you know, if I, like, do I have to build a platform of brands or are these, is this team, you know, I think that's in terms of alignment, um, it is good to think about that stuff. You know, it's helpful for brands. I think we've been, you know, and I speak for a lot of my friends and fellow, you know, founders, I think the, um, there is a power imbalance for the most part. Obviously there are the outlier brands where they are telling people no all over the place, but for the most part, uh, most people I know are looking for capital. Um, And there's a little bit of a power imbalance where they don't necessarily want to poke that bear or challenge or ask. They're just happy that someone's taking the call and someone's looking in their data room, you know? Um, and totally. are you, is that getting more so now or, you know, because everyone's, you know, worried or do you think that maybe this adjustment will ultimately benefit brands because some of the numbers have gotten so crazy and, you know, the people in the ecosystem are expecting, you know, 
ridiculous returns? Like, is there any sort of big picture thinking on that? Just in terms of how, how the landscape has changed in the past few years. Um, yeah, I mean, and if this is beneficial for brands? I mean, it doesn't feel like it's beneficial for brands if you talk to brands right now, right? Like, you know, I last week was fancy food. I probably, you know, and then BevNet and Nosh and, you know, there I probably talked to 30 or 40 founders and everyone's very nervous. Um, and if they're not saying they're very nervous, you know, I think they're faking it. Um, or maybe there are a few that just genuinely aren't. But, you know, you think they should be? I mean, I do think that, you know, no matter like the company, I think that we're, we're in a, you know, difficult climate, right at this period than we were yeah. probably for last year. Um, I mean, d- I mean, definitely since last year. And so I do think that, you know, if you're able to have, um, to have the runway, like, maybe this isn't like the best time to be fundraising. Right. right. Um, I just, I think, I think that when things, when the markets, you know, are are in a little bit in flux and there's things are in, you know, kind of in motion and, and obviously with, um, with, with interest rates um, and, and um, have, you know, increased dramatically. Um, I, I do think that, I do think that, that this is like a, a, a very tough period um, uh, for brands um, in, in that capacity. Um, uh, so, but I mean, at the same time, it's, it's also in some ways opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you are able to survive, if you are able to, uh, to, to lead in, you know, there's, your competitors might not be able to. Right. And so this also is, you know, it could be like an opportunity, um, you know, uh, if you, if, if you're able to, you know, extend your runway in, in some capacity to, um, to actually be, you know, to go for it and maybe become, uh, if it's, if it's in like a new area of, you know, in, in food and bev, it's like, if it's a new, um, type of category that you're, mm-hmm. you know, reinventing or creating, then, you know, it might, it might be an opportunity to really own that category. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what I plan on doing. And on that note, we're going to take a break and, um, we'll be right back. I'm Chaba Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. I'm back with Mike Gelb from Consumer VC. Okay, so we're still talking about investors. And I guess, you know, what I'm wondering is those common threads that you hear. Is it really just, you know, top line, good margins, you know, brand building, community? Or are there a couple of things that you've teased out over the last couple of years where you feel like maybe it's not so obvious what they're looking for? And either way, what what do you think are the are the primary things that, you know, they're sitting around the table when they're evaluating the brands talking about? Yeah, I think I think brand love and just first of all, um, first of all, how customers, how how much love customers have for your brand. And I know that we touched on, you know, community. Uh, I, I know you mentioned community. I think, you know, community is definitely has become maybe like an overused word in yes, the past, you know, sure. a couple of years. Um, yeah. But it also makes sense as to why it has, right? And I think that the reason why it has is because, you know, um, that, you know, brand that because Facebook, um, Facebook and Google um, uh, CACs have, have increased over the past few years, brands are looking from the very get go, instead of pumping money into Facebook and uh, pump money in Facebook, which I mean, yes, there's, they're still doing that. But can you can you have like an a, a organic sales engine that's, you know, really, really great, and obviously, um, and obviously working. And I think that community that's kind of like the way that that we're kind of describing that um, yeah. um, of this kind of organic way to um, uh, to actually increase. I mean, I think you know we talk about here we talk a lot about how you know we never got we never got it easy in the, in the sense that we never we always had to do everything organically because we yeah. were fresh, so we couldn't really count subscribers for instance as community and we and we weren't ever really paying for ads um because we didn't know how to we didn't really want to have them buy on our on our channel and we it's very hard to track an ad when you're sending someone to whole foods or sprouts or whatever but do you think that there is a I mean, speaking, I do think you're right about the word community being overused. It's not about engagement on your Instagram and it's not about number of subscribers because I think we've come to realize that those things are not quite as sticky. Um, So how do you think a brand can measure authentic community and build that organic engine, as you call it? Yeah, I mean, I kind of think that, you know, it's, I, th- I think user generated content is a great, is a great measure. Um, you know, cause it's, if you think about it from, 
you know, a perspective customer or just, you know, a, a, a fan's perspective, right? They're taking time out of their day mm-hmm. to build content because they love a brand so much. Like that is, that is incredible. If you really think about it, mm-hmm. like the amount of, the amount of like, like consumer love that somebody might have for your brand. So I do think that measuring like, you know, user generated content is kind of interesting. I, yep. Uh, and, and kind of, and also measuring maybe like the virality of, um, of when you're, uh, promoting your, um, promoting your brand. I think that that's like an interesting measure, uh, measure as well. Um, and I think also like authenticity and, and are people mm-hmm. actually relating to you, um, and your brand and, and, you know, are you, are you trying to be more aspirational or, or authentic. I think the brands kind of a before were a bit more aspirational. Mm-hmm. Um, and that maybe this is like the perfect way or we're perfect. And I think the brands like the brands of today that are having a lot of success, I think that it's much more authentic. It's much more um it's, you know, showing us, uh showing um showing people like, you know, e- 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 in some ways, even documenting, for example, how how the brands even built like i think right. one brand that i really admire is midday squares who's been on the show yeah. on the show and they have like a you know reality tv show almost with mm-hmm. their brands um every yeah. day and so and i think having people kind of be along for the ride and, and kind of have that emotional connection like that's that's community to me mm-hmm. got it yeah no that makes a lot of sense actually jake was on this show and someone else mentioned Oh, you know who mentioned it was um, Carla, who's the CMO at um, Foxtrot. She also mentioned. I think cool. I think Midday Squares comes up a lot, um, and clearly, you know, for good reason um, in terms of building that community and letting people know like what it is actually like to run a production facility in Canada. Um, and it's not always easy or fun. <laughs> um, I also okay. yeah. I also think too. I also think too. Like as a different example. Um, I also think about inclusivity and diversity and you don't, you don't have to, um, and you can be very authentic kind of in that way where it's not as, cause midday squares, I would say maybe on that example, it's very founder led, founder driven. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, if you're a fan of midday squares, you, you know, the all three founders first name, right. right. You, you, you really, you really, um, you really see them like across socials. Like yeah. Another example, for example, maybe like a, a somersault, right? Which is a uh, a um, female swimsuit brand. I think I, I think they're now in, in in other categories as well. But um, but uh, uh, but Lori, who's the the CEO, like she's very much, I would say, um, like more like behind the scenes CEO. She's mm-hmm. not right in front of the face and head. And they they're doing you know extremely well. And so I'm. I just want to also say that I think you can build a very powerful community by also not being the phrase, the kind of not having a face of the brand as well as a CEO um, of being there. So just like a different example. No, I think that's really helpful. And I mean, that's especially helpful for me. We have this talk all the time. You know, I, I don't want Haven's kitchen to be, you know, me. Um, Mm. And I, I really, I want it to be on shelves in 30, 40 years from now. And I don't want, someone to be like, Oh, that was her. You know, I just, I want it to have like that timelessness. And, um, sometimes that bites me a little bit because people do like to know who's behind it and tell the story and da da da. And I do. Um, but anyone who listens to this regularly knows that I, it's not, 
it's, I don't enjoy it. Um, so, you know, there is always this push and pull about telling the story and being authentic. But for me, that's like people in their kitchens using the product. That's the authenticity that I'm going for. Um, but again, it's like, you know, there's a cap for every bottle. You just have to know what, what works for your business and your brand and your team. And to your point, as long as it's laddering up to some sort of connectivity between the people that are buying it and the brand itself. Because if you don't build that connectivity, someone's going to come up the next day with the same thing, but in a cooler package with a little bit better for you and maybe some more money behind it and kind of displace you um, pretty quickly. But on that note, also, in terms of that brand love, what about just hard, cold, you know, do margins matter as much as everyone's saying now they do because they didn't really before, even though they were saying that they did, you know, cash, earn, you know, all of it. Like, are there things that you just keep hearing over and over again that, you know, funders are just looking at and um, really deeply care about? Yeah, I mean, I do think that margins matter. Um, I do. Because I always, I always believe that it's really hard once you have a business going, and and even and and even when you're in the early growth stages, like I think it's always really hard to raise your prices. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's just it's just brutal, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're used to one you're used to one price point as a consumer. Um, you you know you should be rewarding people, and that doesn't really feel like a you know a reward to raise prices. So I right. do think that. Um, and I do think that investors really think a lot about gross margin. And like, I would say what I've heard on the show is some of, sometimes what is really hard is, um, let's say you have a really great and strong digitally brand and you, you're looking to raise capital and you want to go on retail. You want to, you know, have a great wholesale business. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and wholesale is very different to, you know, D to C and in terms of how you, how you're pricing and an investor might say, okay, well, this is like this brand would work in wholesale, but we're going to have to readjust our pricing for, to make it work in wholesale. And that might be, you know, a price increase for the consumer. And that's just, that's just really hard to overcome. Right. Yeah. And I, 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 and, um, and so, and I've, I've talked with investors and they still will still make the bet on the digital the brand. And, right. Like, I mean, case um, in point is Magic brand, Spoon, right? That happened last week. They're still, I think they're going to be $10 on the shelf of Target. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So wow. it's it. I mean, I'm. I maybe I'm pretty sure that's what I read. So it's a good. I mean, those guys obviously have done an incredible job, and clearly the people that are investing now, as they enter retail, are comfortable with that price point. Um, you know, which is probably an outlier. Would you say? Yeah. I mean, I just, I just think it's, I just think it's really tough. Um, I just think it's really tough. And like when I've, when I've talking to definitely much more retail inclined investors that really, that really like their value add to the business is to create or expand um, a company's retail business. Mm -hmm. Like that is, that's, that's can sometimes be, you know, really just like a difficult, um, difficult area where they might have a great, 
you know, online business, but then expanding to retail. It's just, it's just tricky. And I think that's kind of a case by case, um, scenario, but, um, uh, I would say that is one of the challenges, um, because as well, right. Like starting online, like it's the cheapest form, Mm -hmm. the cheapest form of uh, distribution. Right. Um, and so, and so, and really just to be able to get your brand out there, um, rather than, you know, trying to knock on door to, to, to a, a grocery store or, or any store and trying to get your product in, in there. And so I do, yeah. I do think that, um, it's not something cause as well as um, from the entrepreneur's perspective, you might not even realize or know, like, you're not really probably thinking about retail when you're first starting, you know, a business, you're just thinking, okay, let me, you know, start something online, see how it does. And if it does right. really well, you know, that just wasn't, you know, part of it from the get go, unless you do have retail experience. So overall, yeah. I just think it's a really tough balance. Yeah. Um, there also, I mean, I've looked at, you know, our, like, you know, again, we have several different distributors, seven, you know, all these different warehouses and things. And, you know, our financials look, you know, like 13 times more complicated than like, you know, a nice like D to C, like tidy little business. It's like Shopify, this is the margin. This is the thing. This is, you know, it's, it's like a one page thing. Ours is like pages and, you know, it's coffee stains and it's just disgusting in a lot of ways, but you know, it's, it's funny. Um, they're just totally different businesses. It's not even like different channels. It feels like even the way that things are calculated are totally different. You know, what we calculated in, you know, when we would say, you know, our gross margin, you know, our product margin is X, our gross margin is product margin, then you take away trade and a little bit of this, and then you get the gross margin. It was like 40 points lower than some of what I was seeing my, you know, the D to C brands, but they weren't necessarily adding in what their trade spend, quote unquote, kind of was, you know, which right, was right. under marketing, which I guess for them is below the line. So it's just, it was just a whole, it's funny. Um, and so, yeah, okay. And, it, yeah. And, and also like, just to kind of touch on that too, even how those types, those, you know, those different sales channels are measured from a valuation perspective are different. Right. Right. Oh, interesting. And so, so are they measured so, differently? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think that they are. I think that, I think that they are measured differently. Um, Cause if you think about like the, kind of the magic of, you know, D to C in some ways is that you actually are able to own your customer, mm-hmm. right? Which you can't do. Um, you don't really have that option um, in retail. And so typically there's a premium for your, uh, now don't quote me on this, but like there's typically a premium for, you know, D to C on that mm-hmm. channel specifically because um, because you actually do, you're actually, they're, they're yours, exactly. You, you typically have the email addresses, you can retarget those people, right? right. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, even though e-commerce has, you know, grown significantly during COVID, Probably if you're a successful brand, as we come out of this COVID period and back to hopefully normal times soon, um, <laughs> your, the majority of your sales are probably going to be in retail, right? Because right? retail still is the overall majority. So, you know, and, um, and so, you know, maybe the D2C business is valued a bit, has a, has a, has a bit, a bit of a, a bigger multiple, but at the same time, you know, the retail side of your business is probably the majority of your business, right. right? I would also, I think that's a really good point for the, you know, people listening to this who are like looking for like tactical advice. It's it's kind of why I think for those of us who are going to be primarily or like massively wholesale, 
or never really had, you know, for the fresh brands out there, the frozen yeah. brands out there. Like that's why our email channel is as important as it is. And I don't think people really talk enough about how important the email channel is because even if they're like, they're not buying our packs, they are, if they're getting our newsletter and they're responding and, and they're opening and they're clicking through, that's still a very connected consumer, even if they're buying it from Prime or from Target or on Instacart or, you know, walking into Whole Foods and picking it up. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's kind of the channel without the sale a little bit. No, exactly. Cause you can obviously, you know, what's great about email as well um, is, you know, if done right, you know, then, then you can really build as well a brand, right? Yes. Like in your yep. marketing through email and, you know, because, because, you know, almost everybody checks their email. Yeah. Right. And so, and so it's such a, such a great, you know, um, it, I mean, it's such a great channel yeah. to, um, uh, uh, for you too. Yeah. We love um, it. So. If any of my listeners have not subscribed to our email newsletter, you should not necessarily because it's going to be more people subscribing for me, but honestly, because I think Maddie on our team has done such an incredible job with email and, you know, again, providing value, not just it's, it's really, there's like no selling. It's just cooking tips and tricks and, and helping, yeah. you know, helping our, you know, our consumer in the kitchen in any way we possibly can. Um, oh, and by the way, we also just launched in whatever. Um, okay. So if you were a founder right now, knowing what you know about the ecosystem, what other than, you know, you want to build brand love, you definitely want to start off with some solid margins, depending on your category. I never like to sort of say like, what? Because it really does vary from category to category and even within category. <laughs> so figure out what margins you should be, you know, targeting and try to get there. Now is a really good time to look at your formulations and to look at your, you know, if you do need to put a price change in, I feel like this is the time time to do it because it's kind of everyone else is doing it. So if you haven't raised your prices, might, you know, take a look at that. Um, but anything else that has become kind of a, you know, sometimes there are these things that kind of like pop out and, and you're like, Oh, interesting. They keep talking about this thing or, you know, I keep seeing this happening successfully for people. Is there anything else like that that you feel like is like, a I, I would say in the kind of trans transformation from being a designated brand to, you know, having a wholesale retail business, mm -hmm. I'd say that one thing also to look out for is your, is your packaging too. Because mm -hmm. um, it might be that your, you know, online packaging might not work, uh, might not have that kind mm -hmm. of Shazam on, um, on shelf, right? And yep. um, I actually do, like, I remember chatting with one entrepreneur who said that, you know, she loved her packaging, thought it was awesome. And then she... Um, brought in an investor who was fantastic investor and um, like she had a great relationship. And one of the big, you know, tough moments for her was the investor, which, you know, come from deep retail experience saying, 
I think we need to redesign the whole packaging and the image mm-hmm. of your brand. And that mm-hmm. was a really big emotional, you know, thing that she went through. Yeah. Um, because this is obviously her baby. And yep. um, and they hired a whole team with it and um to, to redesign it so it actually worked on shelf. And like she was like, I learned so much from that experience. And like it did it did work, it did pop on shelf. So like it definitely was successful there. But it might be something that might be overlooked sometimes when you are just building online. Well, I think, you know, if you just think about, you know, have a split screen in your head, one is a computer screen where you have a beautiful, you know, product description page and everything is white behind it. And it's just this like simple, clean, beautiful package. And you have all your little notes about it. And then the other is like a supermarket with thousands of things. Your, your thing is this tiny thing that takes up like eight inches there are things above it, things below it, tags, an air conditioning vent, you know, like some of them are tilted, some of them are out of stock. If you just think about that experience, of course, you need to have something a little bit different for each one of those scenarios, right? And I mean, then you have to think about, you know, what it's... you're walking, you see something 10 feet away, maybe it attracts your attention. Then you have to make the decision to walk in a little closer. Then you have to pick up the thing and look at it. Anything on the back, you've already lost 90% of people. You know, it's, it is just a completely different engagement experience there. You know, we always say, you know, people aren't going necessarily to the store to look for us. Right. I mean, they, I hope that some of them are, but for the most part, we're still hoping that people are walking by and they're like, oh, what is that thing? And we have one shot to tell them what it is, probably from three feet away. So just knowing that all of a sudden everything comes into high relief for you, I think. I think I think also just like thinking about the retail. I mean, I I definitely agree with that. Um, everything yeah. that you said, I think that. Also, maybe during these times, um, you know, because these are also tough times for, you know, grocery stores mm-hmm. and, and retail, right? They're having to raise their prices. Um, this is just really tough time to they general. No and labor. I think that this mm-hmm. is exactly, exactly. And um, I think that this is like a really, really great. If, if you're a brand that's already in retail, right? And you have, um, it could be a couple of accounts. It could be, you know, lots of accounts. I think this is also a really good time to, build maybe a deeper relationship and empathize Mm -hmm. um with the retailer about what are your concerns what what can we do to help you yeah right um like i was talking with a brand that actually went to their retailer and helped and and the founder helped stack shelves yeah um, just to help them out and so i think that that you know kind of I think that when we're kind of going through th- tough times, it's always great to kind of huddle together, yeah. right? And think about well, what we can do, even with your customers as well. Like, yeah, um, another I know another brand that like one of like they they reached out their, to their customers for maybe new SKU ideas as mm-hmm. well and new new different kind of flavor profiles that they might enjoy. And so it's also a time too, I think, as we kind of go lean into as we kind of go through this kind of area in motion. Um, with the economy, it's always a great, I think it's a good time if you do have the time to strengthen relationships with your you customers, strengthen relationships. Yeah. yeah. Strengthen the relationship with your retailers, strengthen with the, with the relationships with the people that already love you. 
Yeah. Right. And just bring those people closer and closer together. And even your investors, you know, what can we do? And don't be afraid as well. If you do have investors to say, Hey, like put them to work, say, Hey, like we need this, that, and the other thing. How can you help us? Cause like, they're also working, they're also working for you. Like they're involved in the company they want the company to obviously, uh, to, to be a great success, just like you do. So don't be afraid to ask your investors as well and say, Hey, like on every monthly, you know, update that you give to your investor, have your asks and be very clear and very direct with your asks and, 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 and see how, you know, your, your board can deliver. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. And it's funny that you mentioned that empathy piece, because I was interviewed for something. um, Someone actually gave me feedback the other day that sometimes I sound a little, um, not sour grapes, but I sound a little defensive um, sometimes on this show, because I kind of have this, well, we were we could never be really D to C. And I got a lot of sort of pushback at the beginning that we were like very wholesale oriented. And I sound like, um, almost like resentful, I guess, <laughs> like the, like the digitally native brands. And I certainly don't ever want to sound that way. So if I have, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, like so many of my friends have founded such incredible, you know, to see first brands and are now trying to figure out retail. I think my only, you know, what I do keep hearing myself say is that it's, it's hard. And it's not to say that building a brand online is hard, but I would say that, you know, when you say, if you have the time, that's not even a option when you are primarily wholesale, it is a have to they have so many brands coming at them and so many people selling them stuff. And there's a humility that you really need to have when you are primarily wholesale and you just know what that buyer is getting across their inbox every day compared to when you enter into this world, just talking directly to your consumer. And, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't, have like an issue. It's just, I think sometimes it comes up where I, you know, I say that there needs to be a humility, um, which maybe implies that there isn't a humility and I don't mean it to, but I think that that's the thing that you learn when you're dealing with UNFI from the very beginning. Um, Before you have any community at all, you're kind of dealing with people that have a limited amount of trucks a limited amount of truck drivers, a limited amount of warehouse space. And you can't just assume that everyone should take you or should want you because you're you're great, um, even if you are great. And so it's like you get that kind of beaten into you early on um, when you don't have that other channel. Um, so anyway, that's my little, I'm sorry if... <laughs> if <laughs> If I've sounded harsh, um, I don't mean to, but I think that's kind of what you're saying is that this is a time when, you know, we all need to to be a little bit humble um, and and build these relationships because they are what is going to get us through. Yeah, I mean, I 
I totally hear you. I think I think as well, like, you know, also, I'm sure grocery stores can probably empathize with you with with if, if you're having supply chain difficulties, right? So yeah, like, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of built that relationship. That's the thing. Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, okay. And so how do you think, you know, after 200 episodes, meeting a lot of founders, seeing a lot of companies, how would you judge your picker <laughs> in the sense that do you think that you're pretty good at picking the companies that will thrive and sort of seeing the red flags in the early stages when you're meeting people? It's a great question. I think that there's always, you know, dealing with early stage companies. I think what you have to accept is that there always are red flags, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just it's so early, <laughs> yeah. right? It's so it's so early, and so how I like to kind of think about it um, with you know, and I'll I'll say this question in terms of like who I actually bring on the show, if that's helpful. Like, yeah, sure. I I um I think about it when I think about brands, like what is actually unique about them. And it might, and it doesn't have to be the specific product itself. Like it could be a very unique distribution strategy. It could be mm-hmm. a very unique, just way to get to the customer that, 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 that they're doing that's working. And that maybe is not, not obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love, and then, or it could be purely like product innovation mm-hmm. and being very, very different um, on the product innovation front. And so that's how I kind of, you know, think about it um what i will say is that i think in like the better for you and food and beverage specifically like um how i think about it is well is um i don't know if you went to expo west this year Mm-mm. but um but um i was there and you know what i kind of saw was i felt like plant base was like the term that yeah. was just all over expo west and there were you know hundreds thousands of brands that we're all maybe capitalizing on this, you know, plant-based macro trend that's been happening, mm-hmm. right? But if you peel back the onion, like, okay, like, what are the ingredients that you're right. using? Right, why would water right? need to be like, not plant-based, right? Exactly, like, <laughs> yeah. if you're saying, exactly, if you're saying, like, we're a tea, we're a plant-based tea, what does it actually mean? Right. Right, so, um, so, like, and it's just really peeling back the onion and seeing if they're, product um no different to investor their product is you know if they have maybe a different angle and two like if it tastes great mm-hmm. right like it has it's to taste great overall taste great. yeah it's got to taste great you can be better for you all you want but if you don't taste great then it's going to be really it's going to be an uphill battle battle for you to try to get like a a consumer or just a just someone you know excited about your product and so that's how I kind of think about all these things. I know that that was um, a little bit broad, but no, um, it's anyway, good to I, be broad. I, 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 I hope that's helpful. No, I think it's it's super helpful because you know that uniqueness can be in you know we own our own facility or we have access to a, a farm. You know, I mean, it can start all the way at the beginning and go all the way through the end. You know from supply chain all the way through sales and marketing and distribution and innovation and product development. So trying to create something unique these days, you know, a lot has been created, you know? So exactly, um, exactly. So like what's, what's unique, what, what's unique about 
what's it unique about you and your story, right? Yep. And so that's what I, um, as I'm sure you love doing as well with your podcast sharing stories. And so yeah. that's how I kind of think about it. So, okay, final couple of questions. Um, if you were a investor, um, what right now would you be looking for in a brand? And if you were a brand right now, what would you be looking for in an investor? Like really at the heart of it, those, you know? Uh, uh, yeah, I'll stick with I'll stick with food and beverage. Like, so the podcast covers, you know, it, 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 it covers CPG and it co covers also consumer tech. It's all just very kind of consumer broadly. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll discuss like food and beverage, if that's helpful. Yeah, um, I mean, I think uh, most this. of the people listening are yeah, you know, yeah. in that world. So, I'll start off with the founder. If I'm if I'm a founder, I would be looking for um, a very retail folk. I mean, it obviously it depends a little bit on the stage, but let's mm -hmm. say, but 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 if you're a digital brand, uh, because I feel like most brands these days start start digital, probably rare to start in retail. Mm -hmm. um, so let's say you're a digital brand, or I'm a digital brand, and I'm looking to and I'm looking to see like what's next. Um, in terms of growth, like I would be really looking for a, um, an investor that really has a ton of retail supply chain right. dealing, um, honestly also relationships yep. with buyers, yep. um, those, um, those types. And really kind of, as I kind of say, like old school investors. Yeah, no, I mean, um, they're the people, old school food and Bev investors that build yeah. those relationships with Albertsons and Kroger and Whole Foods and target mm -hmm. and will totally. and will always kind of be in my opinion underrated because if you think about investing yep. i think that it's easy to navigate yourself towards like software and tech right yeah, and not totally. so much these types of people and those people i think like just in like my example with um um with the one woman who started a brand online mm -hmm. and then had to do a rebrand um to get into retail or make sense like that is the type of investor I'd want. Someone that's really pushing me that understands, you know, what it's like to get into retail, what, 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 what works in their opinion in retail, uh, based off of their experience. Like that is what I'd really value. Yep. Um, and really being like a strategic partner from, um, from that sense. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would say that I'm, that I'm looking for on the. Investor on the, side. On the investor side of things, um, I think there's kind of like two two kind of two kind of avenues that you can kind of go go towards down. I think one of them is um, product innovation, and I think that within within um, let's say within like plant based products or better for you products, I think that an opportunity that we're starting to see is a, a question that that's come up on the podcast is is your product better for you or is it better for the planet? Mm, mm -hmm. um, and those two things are not quite Mutually, the same. Right, right. 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 And I think that there's been a lot of marketing towards um, and a lot of like pumping into companies that are very much better for the planet, but may not actually be better for you. May mm -hmm. not actually be like a great alternative for you mm -hmm. um, and your needs. And this is a challenge, but what I would, what I would kind of love to see is companies that are really looking at the innovation side of and can release products that are both, both. that kind of meet both right. that criteria of better for you, better plan. And that is 
very much more much more easily said than yeah. done Sunny, and that's I what have i would a slide be in my deck that says literally better for you and better for the planet it is the title of my like third page of my pitch deck just amazing anyone wants to dm me <laughs> i will share it with you um under you know strict confidentiality because these things never get passed around at all um, okay, so you're looking for both better for you and better for the planet. And then I think you had one other thing that you were going to say you were looking for as yeah, I would say like another, another opportunity. Um, another opportunity is maybe your maybe you might not have a differentiated product, maybe it is maybe more of a commoditized product. But your brand you're bringing such you're bringing such a new um, mm -hmm. energy to the category mm -hmm. right and it's and maybe your differentiation is the brand itself yeah and and like you know and that's awesome yeah that's also awesome no um, that's very cool and so i would say like those kind of like two uh, uh two worlds right in a way like bathing suits are probably not going to change all that much but there's a brand identity that you want to be a part of so it's you're going to buy a black bikini from these guys versus those guys, because you want to be a part of their world. And, and that's something very hard to create and very special. Exactly. And it could be like, yep. and it could be the reason why, right? Because maybe they're not using this classic, like, you know, Victoria's secret models, mm -hmm. right? And maybe mm -hmm. they're not, maybe they're not um, doing it that way. Maybe they're being actually a lot more inclusive mm -hmm. in terms of what, in terms of, you know, the, the types of models that actually are, or, you know, th the types of bodies that, that swimsuits are actually designed for. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, so I think that like, and then you identify with that brand. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that, that's like, I mean, that's a, that, yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate you, you sharing that example. No, no. I mean, you shared the example. I just brought it full circle because that's what <laughs> we do when we're hosting these things. Um, all right. Well, is there anything since you are an interviewer, anything you want to ask me before I let you go? <laughs> um, I just whipped that one out. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, uh, let me think. Um, no pressure, Mike. Uh, what have you, what's, what's maybe since doing this podcast, Yeah. what's big, what's been your biggest learning? Um, mm -hmm. or, I mean, it, it could be a common thread or it could be, you know, one person in, in particular that said something that really maybe challenged how you thought about, um, our, uh, something in particular. I mean, first of all, I learned something from every single guest, which is just an absolute joy. Um, so they all say things that are mind blowing, literally almost every single one. Um, you said a few, I took notes. I would say that the biggest takeaway for me is that there's a difference between a brand and a business. And that when you're building a brand, that is separate from building a business. And that those two things are very, very important to do in tandem with each other. Um, that there are a lot of people that are very good at building brands, but haven't necessarily focused on the business side and it's not as much fun for some of us but that it's critical and then there are some people that are really great at you know thinking of businesses and building it out um, on the back end but have trouble with the um, connecting part that you were talking about 
And so, you know, what I, I think what I have taken away is just, I have to keep a foot in each of those things, just back and forth to keep balanced all the time. And where I'm not strong, I need to shore up on that other one because, you know, the, the people who come at these companies from, you know, the business school doing the, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to whiteboard it out and I'm going to figure it out. Like they need to have someone on, on the team who's, you know, really focused on why this thing is special and how I'm going to, you know, build the community around it because um, it's just too hard otherwise, you know, it's, you have to have both. So I would say that's the biggest takeaway. Um, but, you know, again, there's, I mean, I've had, I've had my buyers come on here that have just blown my mind with like what they're thinking and what they're looking for. Um, you know, lawyers come on here that tell me things that I would never have thought that I should be thinking about or protecting. Um, you know, it's, it's been wild. And, you know, ultimately I'm just so grateful that I can share it because there, these conversations are priceless. Someone the other day asked me like, why, you know, kind of a loaded question, like why I thought I was a good operator, you know, which is always kind of uncomfortable to answer because presumes that I do think I'm a good operator. But I said, because I've, I've learned from 160 other people's mistakes and what's worked for them. And, you know, it's different depending on every company and what, what you've got going on. But there are some fundamental physics to this that as great as you are and your product is and your team is, if you're not hitting those fundamental foundational things, it's going to be a very, very hard uphill climb. So that's my long-winded answer. Um, but that's it. <laughs> wow. That, no, no, that's great. That's great. I, uh, I, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I, I definitely agree that building a company, building a brand, it's, it's, it's two, two different things. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, um, all of you listening, um, well, first of all, Mike, I'll thank you first. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for agreeing to be a guest. Um, there are a lot of insights here. I'm definitely going to, you know, be writing up some stuff on LinkedIn and I just really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you. Hardly. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> and Armin, um, as always, thank you so much for engineering today's show and just being sort of a sunny spot in my week every time we say hello. Um, and for all of you listening, you know, thank you as always for listening, but mostly for the notes and the DMs and the suggestions and um, all of it. And um, you know, we are all kind of in this together and it's just about mitigating the downside and maximizing when you have good moments. And we totally got this. Um, so I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.